Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The legendary blues musician B.B. King has said, Blues is a tonic for whatever ails you. I could play the blues and then not be blue anymore. Ma Rainey was known as Queen of the Blues, And her life in the early 20th century inspired a brilliant play by August Wilson, more recently adapted to film. Later this hour, we'll listen back to my conversation with Coleman Domingo just before the movie was released on Netflix. The multi-talented actor reflects on working with his friend Chadwick Boseman in his final role, and the music of playwright August Wilson's language. First, classic blues style from an electrifying young musician. Atlanta blues musician Eddie Ninevolt has already made a name for himself at the tender age of 24. His soulful mix of Chicago-inspired blues and gritty, authentic style had been wowing audiences since his 2019 debut, Left My Soul in Memphis. Eddie's second full-length, Black Little Flies, will be released on May 28th. And he joins us now via Zoom. Eddie, welcome to City Lights. Hey, Lois, how you doing? Thanks for having me. I am delighted to be talking with you. Let's start with your fantastic name. When and why did you begin going by the name Eddie Ninevolt? Me and my bandmates, when we were traveling on the road, when we had shows, <laughs> uh, we were we would always be on the road, and you know it'd be probably three a.m. in the morning. And I, I don't want to make a long story, but basically, we were thinking of names for the new blues project, and we didn't want to do my full name, which is Brooks Mason. We didn't want to be just another name, name blues band, you know. So to keep ourselves awake on the road, we would give ourselves mobster names. And uh, for some reason, for some reason, everyone started calling me Eddie. And uh, evidently, I had a temper when driving, you know. And so they called me like Nine Volt because I was always kind of wired. And so the name Eddie Nine Volt just stuck. And we just talked to a bunch of people, and we kind of almost did a survey and just said, "Hey, should it be Brooks Mason Blues Band or Eddie Nine Volt?" And and uh, most people said Eddie Nine Volt, and I. 
at the end of the day, I think it's kind of a catchy name. Well, it is catchy, and Brooks Mason sounds very distinguished. But the blues is distinguished, so that could fit, too. What matters is the music you're producing, but it is definitely a catchy name for the band. Black Little Flies was recorded at Echo Studios, and it has a very authentic sound. Almost like we're at a party with you with the clinks of bottles and glasses and all. Why did you decide to record in that style? Well, Echo Deco is our own studio that we built in a little tiny house. Me and my brother, who's the producer slash bassist, it's like my little creation of the smallest... uh, muscle souls I could do but um but yeah so I got I got a bunch of my musicians over one day they had no idea that they were recording and uh and it wasn't me trying to be sneaky and just try to use them it was me trying to capture the moment of I was just saying hey you know I have a few songs I'd like to jam and just hit record have a few beers and you know I I bought pizza for everybody and then honestly it was just it was just a party they thought it was a party but as funny as everyone was loading up I, I hit play on the on the playback speakers And everyone was just like, whoa, what is this? And that's the way I kind of wanted to uh, capture the whole recording process. In the end, you hear a bunch of friends hanging out, a bunch of people just playing music and and just using all their soul. They didn't know they were recording, which was, I think, the best part. Yeah, I mean, it's just partaking in the excitement and the blues of the moment. I mean, just the joy of music making. How did that experience differ from your first release, which I read you recorded in your double-wide trailer? I was uh, living out at my grandparents' farm out in Monticello, Georgia, which is about 80 miles from Atlanta. And uh, we lived on a 100-acre farm. And, um, you know, we lived in my uh, grandparents' old double-wide trailer. They moved up to a nicer house, so we, we stayed up in the double-wide. But it, it was fun. It was greasy. It was groovy. It had its own little vibe. You know, we could turn up amps all the way. We could hit drums as hard as we can. And uh, But I, I was just me sitting down, cracking up for a beer and uh, learning how to use some of these old uh, gear. That, that was all me, though. That was all, you know, me sitting down on a drum, recording it, and then going back and recording the bass. And which is fun, and it came out sounding great, but it's still not not truly how you're supposed to make a blues record. So that's why I really wanted to change on this direction. Okay, so you're mixing genres a little bit. It sounds almost like a tour bus, although a very cool one. Like I think maybe Willie Nelson's tour bus, you know, with a whole lot of stuff going on. You mentioned your brother, Lane. What's it like working with close family? I will say it's amazing first, but also stressful. <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I couldn't sit here and lie to you. We get on each other's nerves, but at the end of the day, you know, um, we are the only people that we can really truly trust. And without each other, I don't think, you know, we, we would be able to make it as far as we have. 
you know, we'll, we'll be recording and, you know, I'll say, Hey, we need to use this. Or, and he says, we need to use this. He's, he's always trying to use the more um, modern and most fastest route to making records. And I'm, I'm the one wanting to use the old gear, but it kind of pushes us. That friction's kind of good for songwriting and producing. You really adhere to the classic blues artists that you came to love at a very young age. Is it true you got your very first guitar at six years old? Yeah, I, I have a picture of it. Oh, geez, it's probably at my mom's house. I ended up giving the guitar away. I wish I would have kept it. It would have been funny to hang on the wall. But uh, I was six years old, and my dad got me, I don't even remember the brand. It was a little red guitar. I think it had four strings on it. But, you know, it needed six. <laughs> <laughs> but it had, it had a little speaker on it, and uh, you just you just flip on a switch on the back, and it would be this distorted sound. And, you know, I didn't know anything about playing or anything. It was just, I honestly gave it up pretty soon for, like, bike riding and stuff. But then, then I, I started getting back into it when I was about uh, probably 13 when I started playing shows. Thinking again about Lane, who's older? Uh, Lane is. He's uh, 28 years old, and I'm, I'm about to turn 25. Okay. I'm always intrigued with birth order. And, you know, is the older one always the boss of you, quote, unquote? It sounds like you may defer to Lane in that regard, too. Yeah, Lane's always been the uh, business side of the uh, organization. I'm more the... Uh... The salesman, I guess. I hate to use that word salesman. But you're the artist. Exactly. And, and I'm the one that's always going around talking to people. And he's the one going to the, the bar runner, making sure we get our money. <laughs> <laughs> Both of you are essential to what you do. For sure, for sure. Eddie, you are a wonderful lyricist. And I've heard you give credit to your Uncle Brian for your way with words. How did Uncle Brian inspire you? That's funny. Uncle Brian is the guy who actually got us into um, making music. You know, he would call us over and we'd go over there. And uh, Uncle Brian, I think, was re reliving his college years of being in frats and, and partying and all that. And he would just call us over and give us all the instruments to play on. And uh, then we'd finally take it to the family party. But Uncle Brian always had a way of talking to the, you know, even if it was our little family, I'll say the audience. You know, he always had a way of just making everybody laugh. And from an early age, I, I was watching and learning from him. And, you know, I, I credit going to a, a local legend barbecue joint. I played Fat Mass. I probably played that club probably, geez, probably 200 times, 300 times. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that really taught me how to talk into an audience. And, you know, because that, that's one of the biggest things or any advice. There's too many people that are, are the best at what they are, you know, when it comes to guitar or their craft or soloing and all that. You really got to be an entertainer these days, and really, that's really what's going to make you stand out.
tell people all the time, you're just going to have to get out there and do it and get yourself in uncomfortable situations. It's going to get you to, to be the best at entertaining, I think. Atlanta blues man Eddie Ninevolt talking about his new album, Little Black Flies. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with the Atlanta blues artist, Eddie Ninevolt. His new album, Little Black Flies, will be released tomorrow. I asked Eddie to name some of his greatest blues influences. Oh, man. I can either intrigue you or bore you on this because I could go for about four hours. But a short answer would probably be B.B. King, Sean Costello, who's a local Atlanta legend, uh, rest in peace. And probably, uh, like I said, three are probably uh, Freddie King, B.B. King and Sean Costello. Oh, yeah. The people you mentioned are not only great musicians, these blues icons like Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and the Kings, but they're an important part of history and the music history of America. And I wondered if you feel like you're alone sometimes in your appreciation of these older cats, as you call them. Sometimes I feel like that, but honestly, then I go on Facebook and Instagram and I I go and see so many of the uh, the younger guys that are coming up, there's a huge scene in Memphis going on right now uh, with a bunch of young guys playing blues and uh, R&B, you know, that are keeping that Memphis tradition alive and everything. Then you go over, you know, seas in Germany, which is where I hope to uh, be in the next two years. You know, there, there's a huge scene over there of playing old 40s jump swing music. I don't think blues or, or old music, will, and I hate I use the word old music, but, you know, I, I think it's called good music. But, you know, I, it will never go away. And um, like I said, I really think in the next five years, there's going to be a, a huge resurgence 
I'll say retro soul music, which is what I kind of I call my my genre. But yeah, just like you had a huge soul revival in like 2011, I really think that's about to come back in the next two years. I'm going to tell you a story. I went up to Ohio not too long ago, up to the Columbus Zoo. And you know, I maybe did a little bit of drugs, you know, nothing too serious, a little green stuff. I thought it'd be fun, you know, but it was the most depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. Seeing all those, you know, cheetahs running around, you know, in cages. Man, my bathroom's bigger than that, you know, so I think that's worthy of singing some blues. I'm a hippo. I think the world is is due for some good classic soul music and blues music, and uh, there's a lot of guys like McKinley James, John Hay, Max Kaplan. There's a lot. I mean, I, I could go for all day, but there's a lot of young cats out there that people just need to research and, and realize that they're putting out a lot of great music. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. So, growing up with YouTube. In the age we're in now, that must have been a huge benefit for you as a young music lover. Do you remember some of the first YouTube performances that inspired you? Oh, 100%. You know, YouTube now is not what it used to be. And I don't, I don't want to sound like that old, old person. But YouTube used to be, you know, a, a thesaurus or an encyclopedia, you know. But I, I was huge into watching live concerts. I put on my headphones and Woodstock, I remember probably um, the most watching a bunch of Woodstock videos. And then, of course, I was a huge Beatles fan. Beatles taught me about harmony and songwriting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, I, I remember it was a, a clip. I was watching uh, The Dirty Mac, which is Keith Richards, John Lennon, uh, Mitch Mitchell from the Hendrix Experience. And uh, they were playing a, a song called Your Blues, which is a great track. I love that track. And uh, on the side of the uh, suggested video clips, I, I saw, you know, this extremely intriguing character and said Highland Wolf live at Newport 66. You know, it was either meet me at the bottom or, uh, or the uh, one where he talks about the $20 bill. I can't remember which one it was, but I remember watching that the one where Sun House is dancing and trying, he looks a little inebriated and trying to uh, conduct Wolf's band. But uh, that, that video right there, honestly, it just completely changed my life. And I, I fully went down the blues rabbit hole. And I just, that's when, you know, you start clicking on that, you start getting into the where it all started, you know, from the Delta to the Piedmont, just when it got electrified in Chicago, when it got jazzy, when it got rocky, you know, rock, like hard rock infused. And it's just, it's so more than what people think, you know, when, when they think about the blues, it's just three or four chords. It's not that at all. There's so many different styles. But yeah, YouTube was a huge uh, wake up call. I call it YouTube University for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And you're a graduate student now. You've been ongoing in your education there. You know, the Beatles and the Stones were very quick to recognize their influences. Not everyone paid attention, but they were respectful. I have a book. One of the Stones wrote, are you familiar with Bill Wyman's Blues Odyssey? I'm a huge fan of Bill Wyman. I've never heard of that book, though, no. It's wonderful. I mean, you know, he writes about being this white guy, Brit, from a working class family. And he was always in love with the blues. And when he was able to afford to travel to the States, 
the first place he wanted to go was the Delta, just to trace that feel. I think you might enjoy reading about his odyssey. Of course, the important thing is you connected with the originals, those early 20th century musicians who are responsible for what we know as the blues. I remember going to uh, the, I did the IBC, the International Blues Challenge, when I was 15 or 16. It's funny because we got thrown into the, the big boy uh, competition because we were at, we had a drummer that was 21, and uh, all the rest of us were underage. I remember going to the Memphis on Bill Street and just feeling a sense of just like home or something. I don't know. And I just oh. I remember walking walking in the first record store and I bought a uh, Let's Hide Away by Freddie King and I bought both of the uh, the compilation of Robert Johnson. Oh, and those were the first vinyls I ever bought, and I spun those religiously. It can sound sort of spiritual or mystical, but Bill Street, you you can channel that presence there. I mean, it, that's still alive. I read that you are a fellow radio announcer. Can you tell us your experience? As a DJ on WRFG, I want to hear about your radio career. Yeah, I tell you, I would love to do it, too. Um, you know, if I wasn't so busy, maybe when I get a little bit older and I have some time to kind of just wind down, uh, I would love to do uh, have my own little show. But I've been truly grateful and, and honored to be part of the uh, WRFG family for, you know, since I went to Memphis when I was 15, 16. But I can't remember who it was for, but I remember somebody couldn't do it whether they were sick or whatever. And they asked me if I could fill in and DJ. And, and uh, I wasn't by myself. Like I said, if I was by myself, I wouldn't have known what to do. But I, I think I curated the, the music and I explained in between each song. And I brought, and we had so many callers saying, you know, I, I haven't heard this stuff in forever. And, but that was, it was exhilarating. It was so fun to have that mic. <laughs> Sharing your love of music in another way. I'm especially intrigued with one of the songs on Little Black Flies that's titled 3 a.m. in Chicago. Would you tell us about the inspiration for it? Well, it's just talking about, you know, feeling like you're walking down the street at 3 a.m. You know, you've had a terrible day, but, you know, the, the lights are coming on and everyone's going to get together and we're going to have better days and brighter days ahead as long as, you know, we kind of work together. A house in the ghetto No lights on inside You will hear no children cry But who built the statues That look down upon us And who prints the money Who gets to control us You know, I, I don't ever really like to go too politically into my music, but, you know, it's it's for whatever the audience wants to kind of decide. But, yeah, there's definitely definitely some just stuff that addresses it today, especially with the past year, just how crazy it's been. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of put that into a song and let the listener kind of get what they, what they think out of it. Okay. You received backup from some fantastic local blues heroes on 
black little flies. Who exactly did you recruit? Well, there was three different sessions. The first session was honestly the most party session. I, I say party session. We, we, you know, we ended up tracking most of that stuff that day because it was just so much fun and everyone, the, the, the vibe and the mood was there, you know. And uh, we had, let's see, Marvelous Marvin on bass uh, that day. Uh, Jackson Allen is the, the, the harp player, the harmonica player for the whole album, who's an amazing harp player for his age. And uh, let's see, we had Aaron Hambert. We call him Hambone. He's, he's the main drummer. And Cody Matlock, who's no unsung player from Atlanta. I mean, he's been all over the country. He's my best friend, honestly. And uh, he's, a, he's, he's a killer guitar player. And then we did another session where we got in another bass player, which was Brandon Boone from Tedeschi Church Band, who's one of the most humble, most professional bass players and, and, and musicians I know. And I'm just thankful to have him on the record. And then I think Lane played the rest of the bass tracks. Ultimately, what is it about playing music you find most rewarding? I see people coming back to the shows, you know, a few, you know, a month ago or two months ago and, and, and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and everyone's getting vaccinated and stuff. And, and the smiles on their faces and, and just the, the idea of coming out to a show and just putting everything back, even if you got a babysitter or a dog sitter and just letting, letting loose, ordering some drinks, having fun and letting the music take you somewhere. And just seeing that on people's faces and have them come up to me and just say, you know, you gave me the most memorable night of the last six months for me. That's what makes it all worth it and just make me want to write better songs for people to sing to. Atlanta blues artist Eddie Ninevolt. Little Black Flies will be available tomorrow from Rough Records. Eddie Ninevolt will have an album release show at Blind Willie's on Saturday, June 5th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a movie about the mother of the blues. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. August Wilson's play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, is based on a real-life musician known as the Mother of the Blues. The story is set in a Chicago recording studio in 1927 during the course of a single day. A film version of the play was adapted for screen by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Actor Coleman Domingo plays the band leader Cutler in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Before the movie was released on Netflix in late December, Coleman Domingo joined me via Zoom. Here, he describes his character, Cutler. He serves as the proxy for Ma Rainey, who was a legendary blues singer, who was openly gay, who was really a pioneer in blues music, known as the mother of the blues. And I'm basically, you know, I'm entrusted to be the band leader, to also be the, and the band leader's role is, he's one of the members of the band. He also does Ma's bidding uh, <laughs> in every single way. And he's also the first person that, you know, recording executives, you know, you know, sort of the systemic racist systems see when, when they enter a room. So he's, uh, he's the navigator and he's the one who's trying to keep things on task 
and serve Ma well, since Ma has sort of granted him power in this structure, uh, especially when there, you know, especially as entertainers, but you name it, as African Americans in 1927. You think we're fighting systemic racism now? <laughs> there was a whole other story back then. Unreal. Unreal. Now, I see Cutler as a diplomat. And part of the reason I think that he represents Ma well and deals with the white recording studio folks is that he's very refined and uh, quite self-confident. I agree. I agree. It's funny. I Although this one gentleman was, you know, decades later, I sort of found a bit of Nat King Cole in him. Ah. You know know what I mean? Something about having that grace and knowing that, knowing his place in society and knowing that he's trying to um, not ruffle any feathers, knowing how he has to present himself to white America also, but then he's still essentially one of the men in the band. Yeah, and it was when you had co-written, directed the play Lights Out that we last spoke. I'm still hoping yeah. that that will become a movie. Stay oh, tuned. I, I, stay tuned, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> Minimally to travel with it. I was curious, do you play trombone? Lois, I learned to look uh, <laughs> I learned to look as if I play very well, but I, I became proficient enough because the beautiful thing about this film is when we were cast by George C. Wolfe, who was a legendary theater director, he was very sneaky. He didn't tell us how proficient we needed to be. So, you know, you're working with, you know, some of the heavyweights in the theater industry and in the film industry, and you you took it to task. You, you just wanted to be amazing. So they sent you coaches to wherever you were, and you just absorbed as much as possible because, and then also you knew that Branford Marsalis was uh, our music director and supervisor. And so you wanted to please him. So you didn't want to let anyone down, especially yourself. So we studied a lot uh, for five weeks and had uh, extensive training. It is evident. I mean, mm. I, the first time you did that slide, I thought, damn. 
<laughs> he played in a high school marching band. I love it, Lois. If I got you, Lois, if I got you, I think I did my job well. There. Thank you, Lois. <laughs> well deserved. I think I have mentioned to you we have a close friend here in Atlanta, the Reverend Dwight Andrews. Yes. Who wrote the original music for the Broadway production of Ma Rainey. And my husband and I were so amazed by the music on stage when we saw the show in 1985. We couldn't figure out if they were musicians who could act or actors who were able to play those instruments. And when I met Dwight, I asked him, how did that work? And he laughed. He said that he worked with August in the casting because the musicians had to be believable. And in fact, they were actors, but they auditioned more than 200 actors because they wanted some who at least could get the semblance yeah, you want because you, you need you need that authenticity, and I guess, and I do know that like Glenn Turman, Michael Potts, myself, Viola, and Chadwick Boseman in particular are. It's funny. I think the only one who hasn't done a musical was Viola, but she can she can actually sing. She can actually carry a tune. She just has never done it in her career. But everyone had the acumen and had the inquisitiveness and had the uh, we're all sort of you know workhorses. We will, we will, I think that's uh, what we love to do. It's like set ourselves up with something that we have to learn because it's required, you know? I think that's called artistry. Yeah, okay, that's a great way. That's a great word for it. It's artistry, yes, yes, I'll take that, I'll take that. Good, but you didn't have to play the trombone for Branford Marsalis. Oh, no, I sure did. I had to play, <laughs> oh, I had to play. Yes, I had to play it for him. I had to, we actually had to like, croak out notes in front of Branford Marsalis. And to be very honest, by the fourth week of rehearsal, I thought we were pretty good. Now, I don't think, I don't think we would be great to record it, but I think you would understand some semblance of the songs. Oh, wow. <laughs> How would you describe the other members of the band? Oh, what a beautiful question. We were cast, I thought, perfectly. Glenn Turman, who was a a legend in theater and film. You know, he was the little boy, um, Travis, in the original production of A Raisin in the Sun. He's steeped in history. It's just running through his veins. So it made sense that he played the character of Toledo. And then you have Michael Potts, who is, um, who's been doing musical theater and, and showing up on television screens and, and films for years. And he's just a really very easy human being. He, you could tell he has a grace and a dignity to him and, a, and, a, and he's willing to have a good time. And that's actually what his character Slow Drag, his Slow Drag is always trying to sort of mediate and just say, can we just get on with it, get our work done and have a good time, have a little bourbon. And then you have, uh, I will get to Chadwick Boseman in a second, but then you have myself as Cutler. I pride myself on being an incredible host. If I don't know anything about myself, I'm an incredible host and a great facilitator. Um, that's the producer in me. And I know that that's part of uh, what I needed to lean into with Cutler. He was willing to take on the responsibility to make sure that everything is working and everything is, um, everyone has what they need to do the best job. 
And then there's Chadwick Boseman, who was absolutely spirited and inquisitive and a bit of a, um, I don't know, a disruptor in our industry by, um, by really being so uh, full of heart and purpose when it came to his work, which is why he played, you know, incredible legends like Jackie Robinson and, and Chala and, and James Brown, you name it. So I think that he was very much in alignment with Levy. He has so much heart in his spirit. It was just bursting forth, you know, just like Levy. And then you have Ma. Who can play Ma? Who else could play Ma today but Viola Davis, who has so much size, heart, and humanity, and she's ferocious. Oh, but she's yes. more. But she's sort of, her natural uh, ferocity comes in sort of a quiet manner. She's sort of a, a lioness, but very quiet and stealth. But this required her to bring that out and have some size with it. And I thought that was beautiful. So I think that we were all there, we were cast, you know, and also, you know, with, you know, there's also Desi May played by Taylor Page and a few others, uh, Jeremy and Johnny and Dusan, who are all, I think, just really close to their characters in some way that we, we could tap into a part of ourselves. In the rehearsal room, early in the story, as you and the other members of the band share your stories, joke around, philosophize, we experience the music of August Wilson's language. As an actor, Coleman, what is it like to be immersed in those exchanges? Oh, wow. It feels like you've hit the jackpot because when you're working with um, heavyweights, and I refer to my castmates as absolute heavyweights like Muhammad Ali and, and Frazier and Foreman, everyone is willing to do the work and leaving nothing behind. No one's bringing ego into the room. They're bringing a sense of play. They're bringing a sense, they, they wanna um, examine everything and inquire. And also they, they want to lean into the work uh, so fully and be fully invested. And so that's the spirit that was there. And we also laughed a whole lot. We really enjoyed one another because I think that we had tremendous respect for one another and what they were bringing. And so you want so I think we, you know, we, it's like really playing with the most exceptional blues band and making music together and leaving room for each other and, and knowing the engine of, of the scenes and who plays what notes, to be very honest. You know that you know that you're a trombone and you know that you're a trumpet and you're supposed to play those notes. And that's what we're doing. You know, it wouldn't make sense for my character to play the notes that Levy would play or to lean, lay back as Toledo would on piano and just focus on the melody. I think that, you know, it was fun. It was a, a happy space. I think there was um, a sense of greater purpose because we knew we were responding to the incredible text that August Wilson affords us, which is such complexity when it comes to African-American life in the 20th century. And everyone has a complex and interesting arc. No one is just peripheral. We are all, you know, full, fully realized human beings that speak like, that act like, that move like, that respond to things as African-Americans know that African-Americans do. And so I thought it, it's a great, so it, it's um, a privilege to be in that room, to be honest. In this story, Wilson includes dialogue about the meaning of art. Ma says to you, music keeps things balanced. 
And you sing because that's a way of understanding life. Yeah. And when she says it would be an empty world without the blues. Without the blues. Oh, God, I have chills now just repeating that line. But the character of Levy, this young trumpeter, believes his new style of music is superior to the blues and bold enough to take on Ma Rainey herself. Why does she resent him? I think because you have one character that is sort of at the end of their career and one at the beginning, and they're asking for the same thing, to be heard, to be seen. I think Ma is examining her own legacy, and I think she's trying to uh, be, and she's already a a woman and a character who is steeped in, (laughs) she's steeped in her own trauma just like everyone else in the, in the play is. She is also a pioneer. I mean, she's in a male-dominated industry. She is an openly gay African-American woman in 1927. Good Lord, she's fighting so many systems. And I think what, what they also got really right, they always described Ma as looking wet. Her makeup, the grease paint, all that stuff, that she was always a little hot. I think she had a fire inside of her. And she was just trying to have agency in the world and, and be respected. And because she knew she had talent and she just wanted to um, the world to meet her with that talent. And I think then you have Levy, who's trying, you know, he's just, you know, he's trying to innovate. He's trying to, he's, he's saying, no, we should push it forward. We don't have to do that old stuff. We can, he's, he's ready to change the world now. And then you have his other bandmates saying, just give it a minute because I think everyone has their own stuff that they're protective of, that they're trying to unpack, that they're trying to work through. And some of them are just trying to get through the day and just, you know, and have some peace in the world as um, African-American, that I, I mean, every single African-American knows that. You're just trying to get some peace in the world and, and find your place. And Levy is, is, is interested in disrupting that to create a new sound and to, and to have, and to say, I demand my work will, I will break through these uh, white supremacist systems. I don't have to believe that. I have new thought. And, and you, so I believe you need a little bit of both. That the, I think the reason why their ideologies are bumping up, up against each other, as well as Cutler and Levy's, is because at the end of the day, I think that's good for progress, you know, in some way. There's some losses with that, but it's basically, you know, this push and pull of people who actually really want the same thing. They're just using, they have very different operating systems in the way they're trying to achieve it. Levy emphasizes the urban appeal and sophistication of his style versus Ma's rural. low-down blues. Yeah, yeah more <laughs> small-town-inflected yeah. blues. And your character says, you play the music, you don't criticize. Yet, I have the sense that were it not for Ma, the band might enjoy playing some of the jazz that's... I, you know what? That's a, well, that's a great observation, Louis, because I actually thought part of one of my character's secrets, I believe, that you know, an actor likes to imbue their character with a secret. I believe that Cutler really, truly admires Levy. He really does. But he's also beholden to Ma, saying, but this is Ma band, Ma's band. He understands Levy has talent. He thinks he's extraordinary. That's why he made sure he was a part of the band. And that's why he tries to protect him 
when he's not even in the room with Ma, uh, with, the, with the boys in the band. When he's with Ma, um, he defends Levy. And I think that's a, a great surprise. And that tells you a lot about how he feels about him. He just believes that he's fiery and spirited, but he's got great talent. So I think that's why he wants, wants him around. He's just trying to help him temper that and fold into Ma's band. The entire cast is sensational. That sounds like an understatement. It is an ensemble in the best sense of the word. And I know that for many viewers, seeing Ma Rainey will be a sad reminder that it was the last role for the actor Chadwick Boseman, who died just a few months ago at age 43. Coleman, is it painful for you to talk about working with him on this film? Uh, I go back and forth. <laughs> Most of the time, I think it's a, an honor and a joy. And I, I love when I'm able to discuss Chad and his work, his body of work, his work ethic, his dry wit, his um, sense of purpose, his true sense of purpose. So I, I love talking about that because I also want to remember him um, with all that light that he had and how alive he was, I think. That's my last memory of him. I didn't see him when he was ill. I saw him when he was, well, he was ill, but the person that I saw was very much alive and with good humor and great spirit and open. And we, we shared a real brotherhood. And then there are times like, I would even say an hour ago when I, I was preparing myself for some more interviews and uh, you know I'm getting a lot of questions about Chad and I wanted to get some more context. And so I watched his uh, commencement speech uh, for Howard University, where he received his Doctor of Humane Letters. And it was a commencement speech, but then he actually turned it into a sermon. And I had to get myself together because um, there were things that I, I knew about Chad and I knew him as an, as an artist, a musician, you know, a comrade who I worked with. But in that speech, in the, in the commencement speech, I saw that he was very clear about his purpose and why he was here on this earth and what he was trying to do and trying to move the dial on all of our humanity. I understood even more so why he was cast as these legends in quick succession. And that's an extraordinary feat for any actor because he had that sense of purpose in him that he wanted to, I, I don't know, tell great stories about incredible Black men. I didn't want to force you to talk about it if you didn't want to. Oh, no, I, listen, Lois, you and I are old friends now. I don't mind sharing with you. Bless you. Now, though the action takes place in 1927, watching this film is eerie, almost terrifying in how much it relates to our moment in 2020. In the first few minutes, Ma Rainey is confronted and insulted by a policeman. Coleman, what are your reflections on Ma Rainey as a contemporary story? I think it's always important for us, especially as Americans, to dive deep into history and find out more about ourselves so we can move forward. We, you know, we have amnesia as a country and uh, because it's deeply painful. But I think if we show the 
systemic problems that have been in place for many years with many individuals, individuals just trying to, you know, find some agency in the world. I think that we could have a bit more empathy to one another, a bit more compassion. I know that I, I, thought, I thought it was very important in the middle of this pandemic and in the middle of so much racial strife when friends were asking, should I read White Fragility and things like that? I said, no, I think I have a list of films you should watch. I want to show you Black life and especially Black life when white people aren't around and Black people are talking about things that matter to them. So you can see that and see what's in the hearts of people. So it brings you closer to them. You understand their struggle is your struggle and, and understand what, what, what's in place and, and be, be having a more of an awareness of the systems that are in place to keep us behind. And then you can make a choice on how to help move forward and, not, and be an ally, a true ally, because we need to know each other's families and what makes us hurt and how people try to just move through the world and try to get from point A to point B. And a lot of times, I mean, even in that scene with Ma Rainey, she's just trying to get in to record her album. And just one little, you know, accident uh, in the car, it, throw, it throws everything off and brings the system tumbling down on her. And she's just trying to say, and she's just trying to speak her truth, but she's never been allowed to speak, you know? Um, so I think, um, She's a great figure to examine. She's a great figure to examine as an artist, as a woman, as a, a gay woman. She's a phenomenal character to examine. And, and it's done with so much grace and good humor <laughs> and intelligence. And I love what George C. Wolf, our director, has done. He's created this great visual language and this great, um, he's opened up this play in a beautiful, beautiful way that I feel like is a gift to everyone in 2020. Yes. I have to say that in terms of what should qualify as a prize-winning performance, your scene with the character of Levy talking about God, I will never forget how intense that must have been for you both. It was. It, it brought up everything. It brought up everything that you may feel in your heart, um, those possible questions that even if you are deeply a person of faith, that you may have to question at times when terrible things happen to good people. You know, we've witnessed so many atrocities in recent years of whether it's shootings and killings happening to children and to people in synagogues and churches. And yet we're taught, and, and especially with faith, to, to continue to believe, believe that it's God, believe, believe, believe. And then someone comes along every so often, like the character of Levy, and questions that because of his own experience. And he's pulling out receipts, basically. And he's saying, my experience is this. My mother was raped in front of these men. I was cut across my chest, all that. And we were God-fearing people. Where was God when that happened? So he's angry at God. And actually, I think he has a right to be angry because we're taught to not be angry. In this moment, he is absolutely angry because he is, it, it's just what's been presented to him. And he's like, I want to question all that. And it, I think it also breaks his heart. So we had to go that deep. I had to wrestle with him with those questions as an actor. Um, and then you, you want to bring a part of yourself into anything. And so you have these two men of faith wrestling with these questions about God's will. And it broke us down to the point that at the end of that scene, we just embraced each other and cried 
because it, it breaks our hearts. That's, um, I think it's a secret in, in many people of faith and in, in their hearts. You know, there's a secret that you're like, I don't want to believe that. I'm going to make a choice not to believe that. But then what if that doubt seeps in? It can bring you to your knees. And I think that's what that scene is. Actor Coleman Domingo, he portrays the character of Cutler in the film version of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, streaming now on Netflix. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm Lois Reitzes. I would so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.